You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. We're kicking off a brand new series uh, this morning. We're continuing our study in 1 Peter, but we're starting a new series called Game Plan. And uh, a game plan is a collection of strategies that when you put them into motion, they allow you to accomplish a certain objective. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks, is that Peter is, in the scriptures that we're studying, he's kind of laying out a strategy or a game plan, if you will, on how to live a life in the face of persecution. What's important? What should you be doing? How should you do it? And so we're going to kick that off this morning. So if you have a Bible or you want to open your phone or your tablet to our text, we're going to be using 1 Peter, the second chapter, starting with verse, and we'll use verse 11 and 12 this morning. Those of you that have kids, you know this all too, is all too true, but have you ever noticed how much your kids imitate the things that you do? And when, my, when I was younger, uh, my, I was the oldest of four kids, and we would periodically point out my mom's shortcomings. You know, we were the judge and jury, and we would say, hey, that wasn't very Christian. And my mom would often reply with a simple phrase, do as I say, not as I do. Right, some of you had the same mom, okay. And it was, it's tough to be perfect when you know people are watching you, isn't it? And none of us are perfect. Our kids, though, they watch us and they imitate our behaviors, and a lot of times it's cute. This video kind of gives you an idea of what I'm talking about. You get the idea. It's kind of cute, isn't it? When you're doing something simple or, or harmless and they, they follow your example, it's kind of precious. Well, there was a public service announcement video that was put out. I was reading about it this week by an Australian association that shows a kid smoking a cigarette on an escalator, shows another kid littering by tossing a can into the street, shows another kid flipping off a motorist, and then another kid cocks his fist in preparation to punch his mother. All of these were actions that, were, that, that showed this kid mimicking the behavior of an adult. This organization in this 60-second video carried the message that children imitate what they see. And the video ends with this simple phrase, make your influence positive. Our kids imitate us, whether it's good things or bad things, don't they? Our kids are watching us intently. Here's, the, here's maybe a fact that will send a cold shiver down your spine. They're not the only ones who are watching us. Far from it. And that's what Peter explores in the course of this text this morning. The reality is that people pay attention and they will notice how a Christian actually lives their lives. Especially if you've been, you've been really forthcoming that you're a believer in Jesus. And the one group who Peter makes his readers aware of that are watching them is those who are lost. Or what I like to call pre-Christians. I'm hopeful 
They're outside of the family of God right now, but I'm hopeful that the day will come when they will have enough information to say yes to Jesus. So they're watching us, and the result then is that if people who are in desperate need of Jesus in their life are paying attention, even when we don't realize that they're watching, then we need to give them what I think Peter gives as a key point in this whole talk, and that is that make sure they see Jesus in you. That's not a criticism. It's an encouragement. Please, for the sake of their eternity, make sure they see Jesus in you. I was told a long, long time ago, it's a cliche, I've repeated all the time, and it makes so much sense to me. A friend said one time, you may be the only Bible somebody ever reads. I hope that they see Jesus in that example that you're giving. What Peter does in this text this morning we're going to study is he gives us five things we need to know so that others will see Jesus in us. This is a a really good kind of foundational refresher for those of you, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time. I think you'll find this to be uh, an encouraging word. What I want to do is I want to read the text together. It's just two verses, so I want to ask you to stand with me if you're able to, and then I want to read this this passage together. Would you read it with me? Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Thank you. You may be seated. Peter kicks off this text with a phrase, dear friends. And if you were to literally translate that, the literal translation is beloved. Beloved. This is a common term in the New Testament, and we presume that it's used by the apostle to indicate Peter's close relationship that he has with these readers. But some, some scholars believe that it's not just about Peter's relationship, but he also uses this term to emphasize the fact that God loves these people as well. So the first thing that Peter does as he's writing to these people who mean a whole lot to him, the first thing he wants them to know is to remember who you are. Don't ever forget who you are. Remember who you are. And as Peter reminds his readers that they're different, He does it when he uses the phrase foreigners and exiles in the world. These two words are very similar, foreigners and exiles, but they're different in the the, uh, specifics. These two words have a lot in common, but I want to show you where they're different. The first word, foreigners, sometimes translated aliens, it refers to resident aliens, people who migrated here and they live here permanently, but they're not from here. The second word that he uses is exile. Sometimes it's translated as strangers. And it refers to people who are temporary travelers, or some would call them temporary sojourners. They're just passing through. They're here for the moment, but they're not staying. They're passing through. Both of these words imply the key common thread, and that is they're not from around here. They're not from around here. They're from a different place. My wife Anne, her grandparents immigrated to the United States, her great-grandparents, excuse me, immigrated to the United States in between 1910 and 1915. And when they arrived, they worked really hard to assimilate. 
They learned English. They worked diligently at the jobs that they were able to procure. And they also participated in the American culture. But they didn't totally abandon their Italian roots. They kept many of their Italian customs and traditions alive in their family. When they were alone with just the family, they would often speak in Italian. Trust me, I felt like they were talking about me all the time. My wife only knew a handful of Italian words. The swear words, okay? <laughs> and she didn't, wouldn't teach me those. But they would often speak Italian, keeping the language alive in their family. They would play a game called bocce ball, which was kind of like yard uh, croquet, but you don't use mallets. It was, a, it was a fun game. They also they continued parts of their Italian diet. This part I really relished. They made their own sauces. They made their own pasta. It wasn't long ago that Ann's mom was teaching our girls how to make pasta. And it really is an art form. And they baked their own Italian bread from the family's secret recipe. You know, all of these things they kept alive. And sometimes there were moments especially when they first came, that they were discriminated against because of these parts of their lifestyle. And yet they continued to practice these things, I think because it reminded them of their homeland. It kept them in touch with their heritage. And it also kept them connected to people who still lived in Italy. They became Americans, but they never forgot where they were from. And it still continues to today. Peter focuses on that idea, and it's a powerful idea. Christians are exiles on the earth whose true citizenship is in heaven. No matter where you're from or what your heritage is, if you're a Christian, your citizenship is actually in heaven. Now, as immigrants often practice customs and traditions from their country of origin, Peter infers that Christians should reflect heaven. This lifestyle will be seen by the way that disciples live his or her lives. I love 1 John 2, 6, probably my favorite verse in all of Scripture. It simply says, whoever claims to live in him, he's talking about Jesus, must live as Jesus did. That's what Peter's talking about. People will notice where you're from by the godly life that we live Well, there's a second thing that Peter wants us to know so that others will see Jesus in us, and that is to remember to stay different. Remember to stay different. He encourages us to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, he says. Christians are to purposely maintain their status as aliens and refuse to adopt the spiritual culture of their neighbors. The culture is characterized in this text as sinful desires. Paul calls them desires of the flesh. Peter will discuss this more specifically later in chapter 4, but I want to read just one verse to you from chapter 4. It's verse 3, and it says this, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery. This means moral impurity or immorality. Living in lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. That's a, that's a pretty crazy party right there, wouldn't you agree? And that's how a lot of these people lived around these Christians. That makes, that's what the past life for many of these readers was about. And Peter says 
stay different. Stay different. Every single one of us will face temptation of one of these or a combination of these these temptations of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, the sinful desires. So how do we resist when we're tempted? How do we resist? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us, I think, some great insight into how to overcome these sinful desires. In Galatians, the fifth chapter, starting with verse 16, he says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's talking about the Holy Spirit here. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, and the desires of the flesh are opposites. They're at at odds with each other. They're in conflict with each other. And the more that you know God and his nature and his character, the easier it is to recognize these sinful desires. Because you, you, see, you see a desire come along and you go, I don't think that's part of the nature of God. I see that's opposite to that. And so we want to hold those things at arm's length. We don't want to give in to those. People who have no context of who God is and his character and his nature obviously slide right into those behaviors. They're natural to them. See, when you walk by the Spirit, Paul says, he will give you the power to say no to these temptations. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Never forget that. Part of the game plan here is that we're to abstain from sinful desires and trust the Holy Spirit that he will give us the strength and the power we need in order to overcome the temptations that come our way. And I promise you, the temptations are going to come. In fact, when we talk specifically about this, I'm oftentimes inclined to believe that they're going to be amped up a little bit over the course of the next several weeks. So be mindful of that. Well, there's a third thing that Peter points out that he wants us to know so that others will see Jesus in us. And that is remember that you're in a fight. And we are. We're in a fight. He says, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter uses that, this, this idea of a metaphor of spiritual warfare. And this is, a common, this is a common thing that happens in Scripture. You see it used time and time again in the New Testament. Probably most notably is in Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Peter and Paul both explain that the struggle for our soul is a war. And we have to take it very, very seriously. These sinful desires, they war against us. They're the enemy's attacks at us. And they want to defeat us. That's what the enemy wants to do with these temptations. Our real battle, though, is not with people, Paul says. It's with passions within us. The great great, uh, evangelist Dwight O. Moody said, I have more trouble with Dwight O. Moody than with any man I know. Ever identify with that? 
If we yield to these painful, sinful appetites, then we'll start living like unsaved people who live around us. And we will become ineffective in our witness. So remember, the world is watching. They're watching us. And we want to make sure that they see Jesus when they watch. This is a constant fight. We have to always be on guard. Our real battle isn't with people. It's with the passions that we have inside of us. Well, it brings us to the fourth of these uh, things that Peter wants us to know so that people will see Jesus in us, and that is remember to set a good example. Now, that might almost sound too simplistic. Like, of course we should set an example. But I'm just telling you what's in the text. Peter reminds us of this, and I think it's probably a good reminder because we don't always set a good example, do we? Listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, live such good lives, you should underline that word good, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If we're going to witness, if we're going to witness to people who are pre-Christians, people who are outside the kingdom of God, then Peter says we must live good lives. And now, this word good, you may think you understand it, but it's a deep word especially the Greek word that's used here. It implies more than just telling the truth and doing things right. It also encompasses the idea of beauty and that which is admirable and honorable. A good life is one that people notice and they're attracted to it. And then the word, there's another word here I think that needs a little bit of explanation. It's the word pagan. Because he's talking about the people who live around these readers, these Christians who are reading this letter. And it's the Greek word ethnos. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't refer to my neighbors as pagans. They may be pagans. You know, they may live life clear out there on the edge. But I don't go, hey, pagans, how's it going? You know, I I like the idea of them being pre-Christians. I'm hopeful that they're going to come to know Christ. But he uses the word pagan here. It's the Greek word ethnos. And that word is oftentimes translated as Gentile in the New Testament. In many occurrences, this word refers to a person who's simply a non-Jew. So that's why it gets called a Gentile at times. Because of the immoral behavior of most non-Jews, and they participated in all kinds of idolatry and engaging in temple prostitution and all all those kinds of things, a lot of gross immorality... The Jews often use this word ethnos as a synonym for immorality. So Peter uses this word here to differentiate his readers, most of whom are non-Jews, and the immoral people who they live among. His readers had once been these pagans, these ethnos, these Gentiles, these immoral people. But because of Jesus, they had changed their lifestyle. And here's the point. We do not witness only with our lips. We must back up our talk with our walk. Think about it. There should be nothing in our conduct, Peter says, that would give the pre-Christian ammunition to attack us, Christ, or the gospel. You know, when I think about walking the talk, I remember my mom 
My mom would often quote from the poem, Sermons We See, by Edgar Guest. And I don't want to read the whole poem to you, but I want to read the first part because I heard this multiple times as a kid growing up. I'd, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. She would say it. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eye is a better pupil, more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but example is always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see a, a good put in action is what everybody needs. It's a great poem. Jesus said it a whole lot simpler than that. He said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Our good works must back up our good words. Our good works must back up our good words. And there's a, there's a bit of a rub in this. Because we're in this spiritual war, this spiritual battle, living this way becomes difficult because you're going against the grain of the culture most of the time. You remember earlier this year, we did this program called Adoptiverse where we, we collected the funds and you guys bought verses, $35 a verse, and we underwrote the translation of the book of John in a dialect called uh, Wan, uh, Chitwan Taru. The code name was Wanchi. And uh, that was for people in southern Nepal. And I was reading an article this week in preparation for this message, and I was uh, really a little shocked to read that uh, the government of Nepal has enacted a law in attempting to curb evangelism by making it a criminal act to actually evangelize someone to the point of conversion. Nepal's small but growing Christian minority now faces government threats because they're trying to live out their faith. Well, think about that for a minute. The criminal code, which the parliament approved in August, and they've been working on this for a while now, and the president signed on October the 23rd, just a few days ago, it establishes a constitutional protection for Hinduism where 80% of the population in Nepal practice Hinduism. And it goes to, it, its attempt to constitutionally protect Hinduism by restricting religious conversion and by those who would hurt religious sentiment. I'm not sure what that means. But I do know what it means to restrict religious conversion. The law specifically reads this way. No one, and I quote, no one should involve or encourage in conversion of religion, period, unquote. And now officially, there's been a threat of this for a long time, but now officially Christians in Nepal can't share their faith legally. But they're still sharing their faith. If they're found guilty, there will be a punishment of five years of imprisonment and a penalty of 50,000 rupees, which in U.S. funds is a little less than $800. If foreigners are found guilty, they will have to be deported within seven days of being found guilty. Despite these legal threats over the last several years, Nepal has seen its Christian population triple over the last decade or so due to conversions. They knew this was coming. They've not been impeded at all. 
Those who live their lives in opposition to prevailing culture will always pay a price. And Peter's writing to a group of people who were staring down the barrel of persecution from their neighbors as well as the government. Peter is encouraging the Christians there in Asia Minor to live lives that reflect the faith that they have in Jesus, even if it draws persecution to them. And the reason is because their neighbors and their countrymen were outside the family of God, and they were in desperate need of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So when we live by our faith, we may endure criticism. We may even face some condemnation. We might even face a certain level of persecution, but it's worth it so that other people might see Jesus in us. Well, it brings us to the fifth thing that Peter wants us to know so that others will see Jesus in us, and that is to remember that the day is coming when converted pagans will praise God. Converted pagans are going to praise God someday. Listen to what Peter said. He said, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Jesus is coming back. And on the day he visits us is a little bit of a tricky phrase in the Greek. There's some debate as to what it means. But I think Peter is referring most likely to the day of judgment. The idea here is that these sinful pagans, these pre-Christians, if you will, were converted to Christianity. And when the day of judgment comes, they're going to glorify God for the good works that they saw in us. And that led them to their own salvation, putting their faith in Jesus. You know, over 30 plus years of ministry, I've seen a lot of powerful testimonies and the impact of Christians and how they can influence their culture, their community, their world when they combine a godly a godly life with a loving witness. And yet, tragically, I've seen the converse to be true. Lost people will often reject the Word of God because of the inconsistent lives of those who profess to be Christians. Oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. They live like the world. Now, none of us are going to be perfect. And there have been plenty of times in the course of my ministry I've had to apologize for something I said or something I did. Because it didn't point people in the right direction. I know that comes as a shock to some of you. I'm not perfect. Let's let that sink in for a moment. <laughs> now that you know that, the other thing I know to be true is you're not perfect either. But we should try to live, as Peter said, good lives. Lives that are admirable. Lives that are honorable. And when these people, who used to be pagans, now are Christians, put their trust in Jesus... They will glorify God and they will give thanks that we were faithful to witness to them even when they made life difficult for us. Alan Sears, who's the founder of Alliance Defending Freedom, said, Christian life does not consist merely in believing a set of propositions within the walls of our churches. It means living out the truth in a visible way. We can't fly under the radar as Christians any longer. The world desperately needs to see Jesus. The world needs to see us living like our Lord and Savior, even when we don't know that they're watching. Why is this important? Because they are watching, and they desperately need Jesus in their life. Let me close with this story. The power of a godly life is immeasurable. 
You can't fully grasp the impact of a godly life that is well-lived, that is honorable and admirable, what, Paul, what Peter would call a good life. Let me illustrate it this way. On January the 17th in 1970, there was an exciting celebration going on among the Kudj people of Guatemala. It was on that day that they celebrated the completion of the New Testament in their language. Missionaries Ken and Barbara Williams had moved in with these people and studied their language and translated the Bible for the last 11 years. And now they would be moving on to minister and translate the gospel for another tribe. In the years that followed this celebration, though, the Kudge people endured some painful struggles. Guerrilla warfare swept through their region. A guy in the first service said he, he has a friend who's from Guatemala who said that he knew of people during this time who just disappeared, never to be found again. For three years, no word got in or out from these because of these guerrilla fighters. They had killed all the bus drivers that would travel in and out. They, killed, they destroyed all the buses. They just destroyed all the trucks that would go in and out of this region. The area was completely cut off. And when word finally got out to the missionaries, the message wasn't good. Our homes have been destroyed. Our crops have been destroyed. The people were in desperate poverty. And they lived that way for a while. Finally, in 1986, it was safe enough for the missionaries to return. Fearing that the church didn't survive, they were very excited to find not only was the church alive, but it was thriving. It had grown during this time of persecution. In fact, they told of the testimonies of courage and how many of the people had given their very lives in order to stand for the faith and not deny Christ. And they paid with their lives. Four of their ministers teamed up to go share the gospel in a refugee camp, only to be brutally murdered by the guerrilla fighters. And they terrorized other Christians as well. And yet when it was all said and done, the church grew to the point that half of the Kudge people, nearly 16,000 of them, had confessed Christ and made Jesus the Lord of their lives. And even more remarkable than that was the news that the Kudge church, during this time, sent out seven families of their own tribe to be cross-cultural missionaries. The influence of a godly life is limitless. It's immeasurable. So, as Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's live that way. Because they're watching. Let them see Jesus in the way that you live your life. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that someone told us about Jesus. Lord, I'm so thankful that I know this truth today and I have my sins washed away. As you say, we're set free because of what Jesus did on the cross, that our sins no longer hold us down and separate us from you, but because of what Jesus did on that cross, shedding his blood, my sins are washed away. And for that, God, I say thank you today. Thank you again for saving me. Lord, I pray for those who live around us who don't know you. These pre-Christians who are just a heartbeat away from spending eternity in hell without you. 
God, let them see you at work in our lives. Let them see Jesus in the way we live, even when we don't know they're watching. And Lord, give us strength to abstain from sinful desires that will damage our witness. And Holy Spirit, we pray you will fill us and give us power over those temptations. Help us to live a good life, Lord. I know our enemy wants to damage our testimony. We're in the middle of a battle. But Lord, by your strength and by your spirit, we know we can have victory. And that we can live a life that will show people Jesus. A life that's good, admirable, and honorable. Lord, we pray because we know people are watching and we know that by our own strength and by our own ability, we're not, we're not capable of standing up against the enemy. But by your power and your strength, we can. So Lord, help us to be the best Bible people will ever read. The clearest picture of the difference that Jesus can make in a person's life. And Lord, I pray that they'll come to know you. I pray that they'll come to be part of your family. We ask this, God, in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. If you've never taken that step of faith, I want to encourage you to not not wait one more minute. I'm going to be right down here to your right during this next song or at the end of the service. I'd I'd love to visit with you, share with you what Jesus means to me and the difference he can make in your life. Or maybe you just need somebody to pray with you. It's a challenging time. I'd love to do that as well. Let's stand together. Let's worship him. Come if you have a need.